Support for this podcast is provided by the Florence County Museum, presenting legend Francis Marion in the PD. The exhibit explores how 19th century art depicting Marion and his militia contributed to the Swamp Fox's legend in early American independence. Now on exhibit, flocomuseum.org. From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. I'll be joined today by my producer and co-host, Alfred Turner. Today, we're going to talk with two guests who are working to bring the history of the civil rights movement to life in a recently founded museum in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Acclaimed civil rights photographer Cecil Williams, founder of the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum, joins us along with Janie Harriet, the museum's executive director. Cecil began photographing the events and people of the civil rights era in the early 1950s and continued through the 1970s, eventually amassing nearly a million images. Now, in 2023, he and Janie are committed to community engagement. We recently talked with them about the civil rights movement, the importance of South Carolina in that movement, and their efforts to build a new home for the museum. Today, my guests are Cecil Williams, the legendary photographer, not just of the civil rights movement in South Carolina, but the entire American South, and Miss Janie Harriet, who is the executive director of a new museum in Orangeburg, the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum. And Mr. Williams, you and your wife put up the money to get this museum started, didn't you? I guess we were a little naive in thinking that um, we know that museums cost millions of dollars. Terrific urge and a, really a responsibility to tie, try and preserve history. It was, um, again, a 30-year obsession of mine to preserve the history and the experiences and the events that I have personally witnessed and photographed. How many photographs have you taken over the course of your career with regard to the civil rights movement? Because you're going back to the 1960s, so we're talking about at least a half century. In starting at nine years old, I think that I've probably taken about um, 10,000 pictures a year. So quite a bit. I'm 85 years old now and quite a few number of pictures since then. So do you still physically have, oh gosh, a half million negatives? Probably a more, it's, it's a oh, wow. terrific t- task to just to begin to count them. And also, I did not keep very good records during those days, so it's, it would be quite a task. Ms. Harriet, do you play into that? How long have you been with the museum? I started with the museum in November of 21, thinking that I was just going to watch Cecil do his thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as you know, I had been the chairman of the South Carolina African American Heritage Commission for a number of years. And when my appointment was up, as I told Cecil, you know, I just want to watch TV. And he said, no, Janie, I have something for you to do. So since November of 21, I've been working with Cecil. Well, your program director, are you helping him catalog to you, or is that just all, that's his area? That's the area of someone we are trying to bring on board, because Cecil, 
does a real I think there are more than a million images in that oh museum goodness. and um, Dr. Bobby Donaldson is helping us with that and basically what I do is look for funding for programming and direct the programs that we have at the museum and that we conduct across the state. Okay. And that's that's a part of the story I want to get into, but I want to get back to you open the museum. It's a small building right now on the outskirts of Orangeburg, right? Yes, in the residential area. In fact, a former home that my wife and I lived in. Uh, I was not able to go to Clemson uh, coming up um, out of high school. I wanted to be an architect at one time in my life, so in my lifetime I have designed three buildings. It turns out that the building we started the museum in was available next door to where I lived, and it was um, a pretty good starting point to uh, begin the museum, which we started in 2019. My sister, Brenda, my wife and I really are the founders of the museum. We did it with about $60,000, but again, we had the archives, the photographs, and a lot of documents. So we had a kind of a head start in that way. Uh, Ms. Harriet said one of her jobs was getting funding. Since I started with Cecil in November of 21, it's now about a million five. Oh, wow. Because we have a number of programs that we run that are funded, one by the Arts Commission, one by the 1772 Foundation. And so... We're getting there. <laughs> Part of the money that that you're going to be getting is a, a federal grant. Congressman James Clarbon got that in the federal budget. The General Assembly appropriated a quarter of a million dollars. And now you're looking at a new building in downtown Orangeburg. And I couldn't, when I saw the address, Magnolia and Russell Streets, I thought, if you wanted to get an intersection of South Carolina and the civil rights history, you couldn't have picked a better location. That's true. And um, the the funding that Congressman Clyburn had uh, uh, allocated is for that particular site, is not necessarily for the museum, but for a museum in the old state theater. And so we've been working with the city of Orangeburg, and the funding is through USDA to see how best those funds can be used. Well, I want to know, before we go forward, why is that intersection, that area, significant, Walter, or or anybody? That intersection, when you deal with the civil rights movement in Orangeburg, near that location, of course, is the bowling alley where protests started that ended up in the Orangeburg massacre. But those were the streets that run by South Carolina State College Ah. and Claflin University. So you could say in Orangeburg itself, almost the nexus of the civil rights movement. It's important to know that, um, again, you don't stand in a void in this country or in any community. Uh, You stand on someone else's shoulders, and surely the the advances uh, for African-Americans in Orangeburg and in South Carolina and America happened because someone else stood up and uh, made sacrifices to make those changes possible. And certainly a lot of that, in fact, part of the catalyst of America is shared with Clarendon County and, of course, Orangeburg as well as being first and second waves of change in American history. And, and you're, when you talk about Clarendon County, you're talking about the Briggs case, uh, which eventually became a part of uh, the 1954 Supreme Court decision. And that's uh, you, that's Briggs v. Elliott, right? Right. That's, and, 
initially about getting a school bus, wasn't it? It it started off well. There were there were two cases. The one that was to get a school bus, and that case got thrown out on a technicality. But then the Briggs case came in, asking for uh, equal funding for African American children in the small school district in Clarendon County, and that with the support of the NAACP. And it was actually a new new effort for them because they've been looking at colleges. They got involved. Thurgood Marshall came to South Carolina, and it was tried in district court in in Charleston. Uh, and, and that's when the judge, the South Carolina native-born judge, said segregation per se is discrimination. Judge Wade is wearing? Judge Wade is wearing. Yes, um, the... Briggs versus Elliott case um, is very important to our museum and the collections we have there. In fact, as you walk into the front entrance of our museum, it is prominently uh, displayed uh, and represented with photographs that I took because I became involved with the Briggs case very early on at 12 and 13 and 14. My mother, in fact, taught for the Reverend J. Lane, the AME Allen University graduate um, and minister who... Um, really gathered the ministers together and who worked very closely with Thurgood Marshall. It was also my great pleasure, and um, I look upon it as a moment of pride, that um, on one of the trips to South Carolina, to Charleston, the president of the NAACP took me to photograph Thurgood Marshall arriving on the train. And so I took one photograph, and of course that photograph is in many history books today. And and you were high all 12? 12, 13, or 14, uh, sometimes I get the um, exact date. I didn't take very good records uh, during those days and mark uh, my uh, information on the envelopes. And there's so many of my images um, that, um, uh, again, are kind of a guess as to exactly when they were, they were taken. As a young man, what kind of camera did you have? At nine years old, my brother had the camera in the house. A Kodak Baby Brownie special cost $2.25 from Sears Roebuck. And as he grew tired and took an interest in music, uh, he gave the camera to me. I immediately um, became addicted to it. Uh, on Sundays, I would go to Edistow Gardens in Orangeburg and charge people $1 for taking a picture. I got them developed. Later, I had a home-based darkroom, but I made uh, a little profit. And so the financial incentive, I guess, of taking pictures and being able to make them money um, is what drove me deeper and deeper into photography and, and other cameras as well. So... Literally, you started off taking these famous photographs with a very basic camera yeah. that any young person growing up in the country could could relate to. Yes. Um, during those days of film and film-based photography, of course, it was very difficult because in addition to having to uh, use film in the cameras, you'd have to develop the film and carry it through a chemistry process and then develop the photograph. So it was quite complicated. And um, when digital came along... Um, I was one of the first adopters of that because, again, it cut out so much and saved so much time. Um, Mr. Williams, during the Civil Rights Movement, if you were recording this, did you have any issues with the police seizing your camera, trying to destroy your camera, which, you know, we, we saw what ha when that happened in Birmingham, but I just was curious if you had had any of those experiences. Well, I grew up and uh, my education took place right during the middle of uh, the um, civil rights um, movement era. I generally define that as the period between 1950 and 1970. And of course, this is the period when I'm pursuing my education. And I marched and demonstrated as other students did. 
but I always had my camera with me. Um, many times I would step out of position in the marching and get in front of them and photograph them. But I was arrested twice for attempting to take photographs, in fact, in downtown Orangeburg, but was bailed out in about an hour and did not endure some of the indignities that many of my fellow students did by staying in jail much longer. Did they ever seize your photograph or destroy your rolls of film, that kind of thing? Both times that I was were, was arrested, uh, they took the film out of my camera and then threw my cameras in the trunk of their car. Uh, I reacted very poorly, I'm sure, because, um, again, I knew that not only were, was my camera perhaps damaged, but also my film was destroyed. Were you able to re- retrieve your cameras? I was able to retrieve my cameras, but the film was, of course, ruined and being exposed to light. Yes. Okay. And, and see, that's part of the story that I think young people today don't know anything about. Well, it's still happening very much today. Um, my nephew, who happens to be a reporter for The Guardian and The Griot um, during the George Floyd incident in Birmingham, where he lived, he was covering the story. He and several other reporters were covering the story. They arrested him. So it's very, it's, it hasn't stopped. Let's get back to the museum. The, the plans that you've been working with the city of Orangeburg, and Ms. Harriet, this is really kind of your area now. Uh, it's a fairly large piece of property, and it's going to have, as they say, multi-purpose usage. The museum will be, there's a place for cultural activities, which is the museum, but there's going to be housing, uh, stores, that kind of thing. Right. It is multi-purpose, and the space that's allotted for the museum is really not enough space because we have so much, but it's the old state theater there at the corner, the railroad corner. And so the plan is to have the museum move in there. It's limited in what we can do because there's no place for programming, which is very important to museums. Um, So we're looking at how we can make those adjustments. We're going to be meeting with the developers and the city of Orangeburg to see what can be done so that we don't just move from a space to another space and still not be able to have an opportunity to show off all of the works that we have, as well as to develop and present programming. Now, was the state theater or segregated theater? I'm going to let Cecil uh, answer. Yes, as a child, that was a very popular place. Um, in fact, the only place in town that I could go and see the movie is Tom Mix, The Long Ranger, Superman, Batman, Robin. Ten Cent on a Saturday was a field day. Um, I would get a bag of popcorn and uh, spend the entire day there looking at the cereals where um, the... Um, the, the main characters would uh, come near to maybe being destroyed, and then at the last minute, <laughs> they would be rescued. But um, also, um, this area, of course, is in a very historical um, place. Um, but I want to um, also inform our audience that where we are now um, is a workable museum. We've had um, 11,000 people since 2019 to come to the museum that is open today. In fact, in the month of February, we recorded over 1,100 persons that visit the museum, about 35 to 40% of them, middle to high school, and then the other, of course, um, uh, middle age and, and, of course, senior citizens. So what is the address for that? The address of our museum today is 1865 Lake Drive. It is in a residential area right off of Highway 301. 
However, it's only four miles from Interstate 26. Mm. So even though it's not suitable as we would like it to be, it is a workable uh, museum, a museum that where we have been able to put about one third of the documents, artifacts, mm. and manuscripts that we have that tell this great story. And Walter, we should probably mention they have a website and there is a virtual tour of the museum. What's the website address? The website is CecilWilliams.com. And uh, the website also includes on it um, links to other places of interest. We can't be selfish with this history. South Carolina has not really been all through history recognized having the great leadership roles that we did as really being a leader or really being prominent when it comes down to civil rights history. We're trying to change that. We're trying to preserve a history that we have there's a part, a very important part. We played a very important role in American history, and we want that to be known and respected. All right. What about the museum? Self-guided tour, or do you have a volunteer docent take people through the museum, or how does that work? Uh, Not having a full-time staff right now, we do everything by appointment, usually twice a day, 1030 and 230. We invite individuals to come to us, but we do um, like them to make an appointment to make sure. I try to give um, our visitors a one-on-one, five-minute visual overview because our history is a little different and, and maybe different from what they have um, maybe been taught. We feel that, of course, um, given the respect that the Reverend Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Montgomery Bus Boycott, and how important they were, and they, of course, are also present in our museum and their histories. But South Carolina's role is what we emphasize from the standpoint of really the, the beginning and the catalyst stage of, of, of a movement that was going on. Most people know of... Um, the importance of Montgomery, Alabama. But we had a lot of things happening here in South Carolina that we feel even happened before Montgomery, Alabama. I, I was going to say there was a bus boycott in Columbia and Rock Hill before there was one in Montgomery. Yes, and uh, Sarah Mae Fleming from East Over. We have her history also prominently displayed in the museum. Mm-hmm. But her role is not very uh, much told about in our history books. But we want all this history to be known. We don't think it should be exclusive and just known to a few. But we're fighting against time. I'm in my 80s. Again, we want to, in our lifetime and in Janie's lifetime, be able to preserve this history so that it will not be forgotten and so that it can be permanently etched uh, as a part of a great role that we played in the American Civil Rights Movement period. All right. You you mentioned Dr. Bobby Donaldson, who is director of the Civil Rights Institute at the University of South Carolina. Do you have any kind of formal relationship with them or with State or Claflin? Dr. Bobby Donaldson is one of our most important friends to the museum. Uh, He has done so much, having founded the Civil Rights Center at the University of South Carolina, a good friend. But he's also on our board of directors, and we lean upon him very heavily, bug him probably quite a bit (laughs) to— Because, again, he has helped to really put South Carolina on the map. So we look upon him as a friend, as we do with other historians. For example, at Clemson University, uh, Dr. Vernon Burton, a Lincoln scholar, is on our board of directors and also a confidant and also a person that we rely on for counseling and uh, to keep us right on target with our histories. And also uh, Dr. Larry Watson, also connected, I think, with USC today and formerly of South Carolina State University. Mm -hmm. But we have, in fact, a very illustrious board, Mm -hmm. people who help guide us in the right direction as we are going down this journey of establishing a civil rights museum in South Carolina. 
Ms. Harriet? We approached the South Carolina Arts Commission, I guess, almost as soon as I came on board because I've had a relationship with them over the years. So we have a project where we are able to take these images. It's called our Arts and Education Series, where we're able to take these images to schools. And we can actually give them to the schools, give them to the students. We call them our poster series. That's an ongoing project. And we've been funded for two years. We're nearing the end of the first year. Then the 1772 Foundation again came in. Would you explain? What is what is the 1772 Foundation? 1772 Foundation is a foundation out of Connecticut that somehow I got connected to several years ago working with Joe McGill. And it is a philanthropic organization that funds projects across the country. The first project that I was aware of was they funded Joseph McGill's um, Slave Dwelling Mm -hmm. project. And then they funded some teachers to be a part of a teacher institute that I developed at um, Penn Center several years ago. So they're prominent in terms of what they do across the country. Of course, we have other funders. South Carolina Humanities is one of our funders and a number of corporate organizations as well. So we're always beating the bushes. With any uh, cultural organization, that is a never-ending task. But I just keep thinking with the richness of this collection— I'd like to see all million images online. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at Claflin University, we were also uh, very fortunate, uh, even before we started the museum, uh, the Gaylord Donnelly Foundation at Claflin uh, funded a project where um, under President um, Henry Tisdale, the former president of Claflin University, uh, he allowed us to set up a laboratory in the library and we trained students to digitize my film. So that was of great help. And of course, now at this point, Nearly five years after that project started, um, we have just about uh, digitized all of my films. So now the next big uh, challenge lies in front of us, identifying them and adding the metadata. Our history is important to us because if you don't know where you came from, you might not know where you're going. That's very true. Or why you're here. Exactly. Yes. Alfred? Well, I was going to say that one thing that strikes me about all of this is it's community history and community history or local history, as we've sometimes referred to it on the show, is the basis of everything in your community. How did I get here? Why are things the way they are? How much have things changed since my mother or my grandmother told me about them? That, that, That can be community history. But as you've pointed out, Cecil, talking about particularly uh, Briggs v. Elliott, even the big national historical events come back to communities. And hearing you talk about, Janie, about the fact that not all of this history is known, nor was it even well publicized, published in its time, it, it needs advocates to get it out there, which I think is just extraordinary that you guys are doing this. So kudos to you. Our our task um, in uh, documenting our history and making our museum was somewhat aided by the fact that in uh, 1999, I published a journalistic book, a documentary. Uh, It's on my uh, library shelf. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Freedom and Justice, um, published by Mercy University. And since then, they have done three other books. 
I'd also like to mention now that um, USC Press um, will uh, be shortly re- releasing a new book done by, again, a uh, former uh, state newspaper um, reporter, uh, Miss Claudia Brimson. I was mm-hmm. very happy to uh, do a joint project with her, and over about a three-year period, we um, we interviewed and put that book together, and I think it's going to be coming out um, towards the end of the year. The name of it, um, I, I believe, is um, Injustice in Focus, the Civil Rights Photographer, Cecil Williams. But um, it was easy to use these books as a guideline to make the exhibits and put the exhibits on the wall hmm. and to highlight the important thing. Of course, we can't do everything. The concept of the museum is really to invite others. You see, South Carolina was... Of the 16 southern states, the only state that did not have a civil rights museum. We thought this was so important to bring this history uh, forward to make a museum. And we're inviting others to become a part of it. We need partners. We would love to partner mm-hmm. or coalition to uh, really make this happen. We can't do it alone. We invite the public to also um, contribute artifacts. Artifacts also help to tell the story. One of the most valuable um, and historically significant items in the museum is the Briggs Family Bible. Hmm. That was the Bible that um, was in the Briggs Family household at the time they were undergoing the turmoil that happened after they signed that case in the backward and rural community of uh, Clarendon County, Summerton, South Carolina. Again, they they lost their jobs. They had to move out of the state. But their faith carried them through. Since then, we have also collected um, and have on display the uh, Reverend J.A. Delane Bible and also the Briggs Bible. I'm, I'm sorry, also the Pearson Bible. Uh, so we have the Briggs, Delane, and the Pearson Bibles encased and, of course, safely archived so that everyone can see these great artifacts, yes, but more personal history Bibles that, again, enable these people to have the faith to withstand all the challenges they were facing as they signed that Briggs versus Elliott petition back in the 1950s. Uh, the Topeka, Kansas case is the case that, of course, has the namesake. But as the Briggs versus Elliott was the first case in history to attack segregation in public education. Well, I have to say it is time to wrap up. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's my job, Walter. It's my job. I know it. I know it's your job. See, I didn't look and I didn't see you twirling your finger. Well, I wasn't, <laughs> because now I get to talk to you, unlike our days on the radio. All right. Well, I would like to thank Janie Harriet and Cecil Williams for being with us today to talk about the Civil Rights Museum in Orangeburg and the history of civil rights in the state of South Carolina. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. It's been wonderful to be here with you, and please invite us again. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've known both Cecil Williams and Janie Harriet for quite some time, and the efforts of both of these two outstanding South Carolinians to educate South Carolinians and Americans about the civil rights movement in South Carolina is an important contribution to the history of our state and our country. 
Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. As always, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at southcarolinapublicradio.org as well as wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again soon.